I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Preisman, and I'm really excited about this episode. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Vereen, who is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and author of the essay collection, Mine, a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award. She was a National Endowment for the Arts Fellow and teaches in the Creative Writing Program at Arizona State University. Her new book is called To Name the Bigger Lie. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to talk about this book with you because, wow, I have a lot of thoughts. And I thought the, maybe the best way in is to confess my jealousy when I first started reading the book. When you talk about having a teacher who was so charismatic and inspiring that you were taught to question everything which is a thing that I did not have in the mid-90s in high school. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's unique that, to have a teacher, especially in public school. I don't know if you were in public school. I was. But to have, yeah, to have a teacher in a public school in Florida, which is where I grew up, who taught us philosophy. I just, in retrospect, I feel really lucky, as complicated as he ended up being a, a, you know, as a teacher. It's, it's still pretty amazing that I was introduced to some of those big questions like who am i do i exist what does existence mean like is anything true like all of those really big picture questions at the same time that i was coming of age because i think when we're coming of age we're naturally kind of thinking about those but if we're not given like the scaffolding to to move into that more sort of philosophical realm, it's easier to also get distracted by like, why do I have a big pimple on my nose? Like, does it <laughs> yeah. like me? Which I also thought about, you know, as a teenager, but I, I think it was nice to have those. I, I really am thankful for that. And you did, I, I really enjoyed hearing about 
you as a teenager at like kind of trying on different vibes and most importantly coming out in the mid 90s also a thing that wasn't very common at the time yeah especially i think in the south i mean florida is this weird realm people don't think of florida as the south but it's definitely not new york city or san francisco you know so yeah i do think coming out at that point i mean ellen wasn't even out yet right so like it was a time in which it felt more lonely and i think i have a part in the book where I, I started to realize that there were gay pride flags. <laughs> and, and you know, I think that that's, you know, I just think about that idea of like the presence of gay people, especially when you're a place in that period in time and in the South, like any moment in which you can see yourself reflected in the outside world is so satisfying. But I also think that it was, it sort of primed my way of thinking about the world, which is part of the book. Like when you're queer in a world that's not as accepting of queerness, then you're always looking for signs and confirmation that you're okay. So you're kind of reading the world in a way that's in a different way than those that who are not queer. Um, and I do feel like that, like that wouldn't have happened if I'd been in New York City in the early 2000s, right? Like there's just a, there's a different way of, of existing when you're, when you definitely feel the sense of being a, a minority. So yes, yes, it was it was it was a much harder time uh, to be queer than it is now. And then, of course, in terms of finding community and asking big questions, we take for granted that the internet <laughs> it, it connects us to so many different ways of thinking, and it, it's worth kind of acknowledging that. I think I'm almost exactly the same age as you are. And um, we got by based on uh, looking in encyclopedias. And uh, there wasn't much. Yeah. Yeah. And also reading, um, you know, I think reading other books. I have have these like fond memories of going to the university library, the University of South Florida library when I was in high school. Um, And often it was for like researching, you know, stuff for school. But there were also times that I would just like look up, you know, lesbian stuff. And and later, and this is not in the book, but in, in college, I got really interested in, in queer history. And I volunteered one summer with Nyad Press, which is one of the first lesbian presses in the United States. It was based in Tallahassee, like outside of Tallahassee, Florida, in a little town called Havana. And I worked there and I would send out every day, you know, this is in the early 2000s lesbian literature that it still was sent out in like paperbacks so that you know to protect people's privacy so that nobody would know you were getting a lesbian novel so yeah I I think that that idea of like the knowledge of queer culture knowledge of that sort of community was much harder to access right and it felt so much more precious when you actually got it whereas now you can just it's much easier to just go online and find that sort of knowledge and I'm glad for that but yeah. um, it did mean that when you found those bits of knowledge that helped you understand yourself or helped you understand like who you were in the world, like you really clung to them. They meant so much. And and so I, I was jealous of you again when you your junior year, uh, you have a course actually called Theory of Knowledge. And Mr. Wiles, which is what you call your teacher who, who taught you both freshman year and junior year had really seemed like this kind of dead poet society kind of teacher. Yeah. And then junior year, things kind of changed. I'm wondering if you could talk just about 
the scene in which you walk out of class because that is I was underlining curiously <laughs> I was written for you um and again it seemed like such an act of self-possession and bravery on your end um for being a teenager confronting a teacher yeah didn't feel that way at the time um yeah so Dr. Wiles what happened he was this you know, really charismatic um, teacher who taught, like, who taught us philosophy and taught us so many things. Um, but by my junior year, he had gone through a sort of transformation. And he'd always dabbled in conspiracy theories and sort of been like, what do you think? You know, is there a new world order? And and it, and it was sort of seemed, um, it was seemed playful, I think, at first, but then it got more and more intense. And so the scene you're talking about is towards the end of my junior year, when he showed us a debate about the Holocaust and he showed us just the first half of the debate saying that the Holocaust had not happened as we think it had. Um, and I actually did not react then because in this sort of, I think this gets to, I talked to so many students, I interviewed you know students from that year and one of them said, you know, we just didn't push back then. Like we just, we just accepted what we were told. And I didn't push back when we watched that first half, but I assumed that when I came back to class, the next class, we watched the response, which would say that the Holocaust did happen as we know it did and we learned in history. And when I came back to class, he didn't bring out the TV and he didn't show us the other side of the debate. And that was this real breaking point for me where I could actually see that he was manipulating us. It was very hard. I mean, I think that's the thing about, that's what I'm exploring in the book. And I think that's the thing that a lot of us feel right now is that it's really hard to figure out where to draw the line. Like when is somebody lying or manipulating in a way that's kind of funny? Or when are they lying and manipulating in a way that's like not really that big of a deal? And when are they lying and manipulating in a way that's threatening democracy? Or in this case, you know, threatening our ability to know like historical fact. I don't think I, I could not articulate it that way at that po moment in time. All I knew is that I just felt really betrayed. And so I reacted on that feeling of betrayal. But what I felt afterwards was really alone because I think that I was the only person that reacted. And I felt, you know, kind of like I was being a hysterical girl, <laughs> basically. And so, yeah, a lot of the book is trying to work through that and figure that out and what it, you know, the context of all of that. Absolutely. And I, I do love the idea that. I think when you describe the scene, I don't know if you felt that way at the time, but like there is this idea that, especially now, all things should be debated. And there are some things that maybe um, shouldn't be up for debate. Or and where do you draw that line? What should we debate? What should we? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult question. Yeah, and I think I even say in the book. I feel conflicted about even bringing this up because in bringing it up, I was able to find the video online. So I was able to sort of talk about it in more detail. It wasn't, it was based on memory, but you know, I had the actual video so I could, I could quote from it and the debate video. But I think that's complicated too. I thought there's a way in which even just telling that conspiracy theory could do harm. Um, you know, having that out in the world sort of, allowing platform as we could say platforming right platforming that viewpoint but then also i mean what i ended up saying in the book is like but i don't know how else to grapple with being sucked into that what that feeling of being sucked into to that narrative and and having to deal with it 
but I do think there's there's danger in quote unquote platforming it or in you know sort of giving it space. Um, and yeah, there's no easy answers. <laughs> and and yeah, I can see how Trump gets elected and this episode in your past hits differently. Yeah, and I yeah I was thinking about what it was sort of the inciting incident or like the impetus for this book. And there were a number of them, but one of them was definitely not Trump getting elected, but his rise and the narrative that what I was kind of pushing against or thinking about with this narrative that we had for a little while that like only uneducated poor whites are falling for Trump. And I wanted to push back against that. And I think the, you know, the election results showed us that it wasn't just uneducated poor whites. There were very well-educated white women that were voting for Trump, you know, and that, that were clearly, if not falling for his sort of conspiratorial thinking, at least accepting of it. And and that's something that I was really interested in in the book is like, how do we think about the way we react to that kind of rhetoric, right? Like, why do some of us push back? Why do some of us just shrug it off, right? And just say, oh, it's not a big deal. And, and why do some of us fall for it? Why do some of us like get really wrapped up in these conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking, I was really re- interested in thinking about that kind of more rigorously rather than just blaming one particular group um, yeah. for that kind yeah. of thinking. And, and I, I love your, first of all, you keep a journal, which uh, I think is, is probably key to accessing those, those high school memories. But, but then you go back and reconnect with so many of your former classmates and, and you do kind of show the varying reactions that maybe not to that particular thing, but to that particular teacher, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think that was one of the most sort of most emotionally moving parts of the book process for me, because so much of the book process was grappling with things that had already happened and trying to figure out how to make sense of them. And that's difficult you know, intellectually and emotionally. And, and um, you know, there's really interesting challenges about that. But the talking to classmates brought up new emotions, right? Like sort of reconnecting with these people who I hadn't talked to in 20 years and hearing about the way they interpreted this one man that we all sort of shared in common was, it ended up being really emotionally moving for me um, and help and challenging in good ways. Right. Because I think that we, it's so easy to create a narrative of your past that feels comfortable to you. <laughs> and, you know, I really wanted to try to think about that past both as like a memoirist and as a journalist. And so it felt really multidimensional, but it also felt really emotional just to hear from people in writing the book, but also since it's come out, I've heard from, some of those same classmates. And one of them said to me, reading the book has made me really think I want to take these things more seriously. And I have kids and I want to talk to them about these issues. And I thought that was really touching. You know, it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be moralistic in the book at all. I just want us to talk about and think about some of the issues that the book's raising. And so that, that meant a lot to me, that, that idea of change. I was really interested in like myself changing and other people I talk to, what it means to change your opinions and your thoughts, not only about yourself, but, but about your own history and the people in that history. And then I love that you get to talk a, a bunch about craft, too, in, in, <laughs> in, in talking about how to approach um, talking about your past. And you mentioned Virginia Woolf's notion that 
there's you of the past and you of the present. And those are two different people. And the thing that she doesn't address, which of course is such a key component of your book, is that you in the present is still changing. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of key to the book too, is that, you know, I was, the book starts that I was writing this story about high school and um, I did have, that's what felt like a static, what she calls the I now, this person we are, the person I am in this moment, um, writing about the past. And there's something so safe about that, right? I'm this <laughs> static constant. But what happens in the book and the sort of second part is that, you know, that something happens to my I now that I've myself and my partner were sort of thrown into what ended up feeling like a similar situation of sort of being trapped in, in lies and manipulation by a completely different person. And I thought that was, I mean, at the time it was horrifying and overwhelming, but in craft wise, thinking about the book, it really was helpful because a memoir is, you know, is an examination of the self. Um, Vivian Gornick has this distinction where she talks about memoir and essay. And she says that essay is that uses the self as a lens to understand the world and that like the memoir uses the world as a lens to understand the self. I think I'm doing a little of both in the book, right? I'm interested mm-hmm. in both the self, um, but also in like the way the self help us, helps us understand um, the world outside. Um, but complicating that sense of self felt particularly rich and important um, within a memoir, but I think within a book like this too, that's, that's, that is kind of coming out of those really basic philosophical questions, like who am I? What does it mean to be a person, et cetera? Um, and, and yeah, it is really more complicated. You're, the self you are right now could always change. And that's kind of the, the risk, but the joy of being alive <laughs> is that, you know, we just, we don't have control over that all the time. And there can be tragic and, and wonderful things that happen that completely change our, our lives and circumstances and what we understand of the world. You, you also mentioned, of course, as another impetus for writing this book is the birth of your daughter. And yes, let's talk about the joyful one first. <laughs> yeah. So my partner and I have two kids and my partner carried our, our first, our older daughter and I carried the second one. So in some ways I had this experience of like, watching a baby be born but never but not going through the experience of birth and then I gave birth to our, our daughter so I did this really interesting thing called hypnobirth where you hypnotize yourself during the um, birthing process and I didn't I am not I'm not a very woo-woo person like I don't tend to think that like there's I I, I very much get into like sort of medicine and you know I would have taken an epidural but my friend said try this and I said okay I'll try it and I did not think it would work, but it did. It was pretty amazing because I have very low pain tolerance, but I was able to sort of pass through the whole process of birth with this hip, like self-hypnotizing um, and have very little pain. Um, but it all went away right when she was, right when she was coming out, right? So, and the pain suddenly, I said, like hollowed. It, 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 it overwhelmed me, um, but it, there was this amazing moment where I, I say in the book that I kind of feel like I felt like God. Like I felt like um, I talk a lot about Plato's allegory, the cave in the book, and this idea of like leaving the cave where you're deceived into this moment where you know what is what. And there was a sort of beautiful moment of clarity where I felt um, like I understood everything. <laughs> like I felt uh, the the wonder that Socrates talks about and like this sort of, you know, maybe nervous 
nirvana, whatever these things that we talk about as being like sort of this 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 state that we might hope to reach. And it was very brief, but right when my daughter was born, I felt that. And it was pretty magical and intense and incredible. And I think that I really clung to that in part because it helped me think about what amongst all this talking about like what's happening to truth what you know like what are all the threats that are going on right now like how do we deal with you know so much manipulation and and all of these other moments of strife in the world i think that moment of the birth helped me remember that like but yes but in being a human what is incredible is the potential for wonder right for this potential for some sort of state where we feel kind of connected to one another, to God or whatever it is that, that you believe. And then that's also part of our understanding of truth or whatever truth is. And so I think that um, I really did cling to that, you know, it was sort of there present as I was writing the book because it maybe, as you said, it felt more hopeful it was the sort of other side of the coin. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do love an image from closer to the end of the book when, when you talk about embracing one another in the cage. And even yeah. if you can't come out of it, there there is beauty in that too. Yeah. Um, so so Sarah, I'm wondering the next part. Of course, I I read your New York Times Magazine piece. I'm wondering if how you tell the story of what happened to you has changed, and then if you can tell it. Too. Yeah, it's such a complicated story. It's such a hard <laughs> story to tell succinctly i'm always relieved if somebody has read the new york times piece because then i can say oh you already you've already read this compact version of this story but what i often say is that or the way i understand it is that you know somebody i knew created a series of lies about my wife and me and trapped us in some ways we were sort of trapped in them for a couple months and couldn't get out of them and specifically what he what he did was he pretended to be women at our university and filed Title IX accusations uh, against my wife, Marta. And then eventually they included me as well. And we were put under investigation. And we sort of realized the reason he had done that is because he, and this is the complicated part, was that I had been offered a job that he was second in line for. And he knew that I would only take the job if Marta also got a spousal hire. And it's in some ways, I think what's so complicated about telling that narrative that I just told is that there are so many steps to it, right? There's so many like layers in which like the logic of it is like, if this, if this, if this happens, then therefore this will happen. But I also think it's also, it's difficult to tell sometimes because it seems so unbelievable. And when it happened to us, when I realized it was him before we could prove it, but when I really felt convicted, like convicted that a strong conviction that it was him, even then it felt hard to tell people because it felt almost like I was fibbing, right? It felt like you were making up sort of this fantastical um, fabrication. Um, but I wasn't, <laughs> but it was, you know, we were eventually able to find proof that it was him. I guess the the one, the, the sense that I make of it, I mean, I think now something that feels pretty important to me was that because he did that, because he did what sort of felt unthinkable, it meant that for a while afterwards, and still even now today, there are moments which I wonder if there might be another grand conspiracy, right? That I, it really, I think it allowed me to really understand conspiratorial thinking more viscerally, because when we were being accused and weren't able to prove that there are innocents yet, 
there was a real feeling of desperation to sort of be able to get out under the thumb of his of his lies and manipulations. And my worst fear would be to return to that, you know, and I think that I even mentioned in the book that Marta said she would divorce, divorce me if I reached you out reached to him and, and, and tried to interview him because I did reach out to Dr. Wiles and tried to interview him or did interview him. Um, and I understood why she said that because she just this, this fear that you could fall back into that and how easy it is to potentially fall into somebody else's storytelling or somebody else's narrative and have them have control of your narrative. And I think that that awareness of the vulnerability that all of us are in, that the, the ability that we could fall into it was really important to me, but also the awareness that like how easy it is to fall into sort of conspiratorial thinking and to feel conspiratorial about the world and how to sort of push back against that. Both of those were emotions or, or, or problems that I grappled with in the book that I don't think I had thought about when I was writing the article, right? There's something I was sort of thinking through in the book. Yeah, and I, it must have been, especially when you were desperate and trying to prove your innocence, you talk about how these accusations made you think twice anyway, even though you know you didn't have parties that involved plentiful amounts of wine or whatever it was that that it still doesn't matter that that it's still unsettling and and kind of puts you out of your own sense of self yeah I think that was the most disturbing and and frightening to me was that there were moments where I not only doubted Marta that was disturbing and frightening but that's another person I think we could all at some point doubt you know our spouse but that I actually doubted myself. There was a there was one accusation where the character Jessica, who was created by this man Jay, said that I was lying topless on a bed. And at the first moment, it seemed ridiculous. But then, in her accusation, she also said that there was a painting on my wall, which there was a painting on my wall, and I just couldn't let go of that. I just there was a glitch. It was almost like there was a glitch in my brain where I was like maybe this did happen, right? It was, and it was, that was really, really frightening um, because um, it suddenly felt like maybe I don't know myself. Who, that's the question, who am I, right? Um, and to doubt yourself and your own memories to such an extreme, I think we all sometimes doubt small memories, but, you know, such a, such an important um, potential memory to, to doubt that felt really, really frightening. And it was kind of amazing how easy it was to fall into that, that temporary state of doubt. And one of the things you point out um, after you explain the, the entire Jay ordeal is that you realize that both he and Dr. Wiles and you and your spouse are teachers. And um, that that connects you in a really meaningful way, it seems. Yeah. And and so with Socrates and you know and Plato, who yeah. were, were sort of like hovering in the background of all that discussion, and you know Plato's allegory of the cave is a lot about is very much about education. Yeah, I, I, that was that was something I just started to think so much about, partially because I was also thinking about democracy. You know, I was thinking about this 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 idea of our democracy and. What does it mean for us to have a shared reality and, and actually like invest in that shared reality and how um, there's obviously splinters in that right now. And, and that is arguably a threat to democracy. But thinking about within that the way that educate like the role that educators play. And I was really I was really interested in thinking about education 
and benefits and harm and not an easy black and white version of that. Because I think that Dr. Wiles, I really do think there were so many benefits to the way that he educated us. And I, I'm so appreciative. But I also think it's very clear to see that there were there were harms and the way that he was interacting. And and so, yeah, I was I was I was really interested in and continue to be interested in the way that educators, the power that educators have. Right. And I don't talk about this as much in this book, but I, I do think a lot about our world. You know, I've been thinking about starting a, my daughters are in elementary school. And I recently talked to the principal about starting a newspaper club in their um, elementary school and how amazing that would be because if they could, I mean, I, 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 in the book, there's a scene where I'm in journalism class, right? And I, I'm on the school newspaper. Um, and that was really formative to me because that's one way in which people can learn about the importance of journalism. And it's, it's vital, right? It's really vital to this world. But I think philosophy as well, you know, and literature. I mean, I talk, the book is full of literature, but like this idea of, being able to teach and share stories. And in some ways, that's my larger conclusion is that, okay, we can we have fact-checking, we have journalism, we have a lot of things and we're, we're trying to grapple with the problem in various ways. But I really do think we need stories, like, and we need to value stories, like, and not just nonfiction memoirs like mine, but also like novels. Like we need to, we need to, I think you and I value them, but as a sort of, culture we need to value the ways in which poetry and and novels and memoirs and everything else contribute to our understanding of what is real right and like and the community that we all share right um and the importance of, of those those works sarah this seems to be uh, a a great opportunity to ask i have so many other questions i can ask you but i'm going to stop and ask you to talk about some books you'd like to recommend please well, so I've been on a huge Janet Malcolm kick as of late. Um, you know, I was I read some essay that talked about I hadn't realized that she and Joan Didion were born in the same year and died in the same year. And I'm I've always loved Joan Didion. I've you know, I'm an essayist, of course I do, but I had not read as much of Janet Malcolm until recently. And so I teach um the journalist in a murder. I taught a true crime class not long ago. Um, and I taught that, but then I've just been reading a number of her other standalone books. And I am in love with the way that she really, uh, A, lets people talk uh, in her work and like sometimes lets them indict themselves. But also uh, I just recently read into the Freud archives and you know be, the, the characters in there just go on and on and on. And there's almost as if you're an analyst, right? Like analyzing what the um, what they say, but also the way she really zeroes in on conflict, right? And like trying to understand the central conflict and using it to teach us something bigger about humanity, right? And the way that we are as people. I just think she's she's brilliant, um, both structurally and the way she uses characters. And then more recently, like more recent work, I, the other one I was going to recommend is When We Cease to Understand the World by Benjamin Labatut. I adored that book, came out a couple of years ago, but I think about it all the time, um, in part because I'm really interested in fact versus fiction and he does these really clever things in which you know the first story is almost completely factual except for like one paragraph I think of fiction and then it sort of moves into more fictional mode but he's still grappling with issues of, of sort of power and politics and science in the world I love that and then the last one I'll say I just read Big Swiss by Jean Began and I adored it I thought it was really funny um, but structurally I'm really interested in structure structurally um, I just thought it was perfect um and i and i love the way that by the end of the book you suddenly felt this real depth 
for the central protagonist. And I don't think you felt at the beginning, I feel like that was purposeful. So this, this, this real switch in understanding of our narrator and protagonist, I just, I thought it was brilliant. And it's really funny. So those are some recommendations. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. So name the Bigger Lie is out now. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.